This is OTB Sports Radio, Thursday Night Football with John Giles. When you lose a big match like that, you have to suck that up. Mm. But to go into a dressing room and say you're celebrating to be disrespectful, I mean, who is Mourinho to talk about disrespect? The best analysis of all the week's football from Ireland's number one football man. Pogba's a social media star, right? He appeals to the young people now, he does his dance, he has his hair and all that. That's all he's worried about, in my opinion. Not worried about being a great player, Nathan. John Giles. Every Thursday at 7.30pm on OTB Sports Radio, live 24-7 on the Go Loud app. The OTB Podcast Network. OTB Gold. The very best of Off The Ball. You're listening to the very best of Off The Ball. Jason Sherlock has been one of the most interesting characters in Irish sport over the past three decades. And it's all in the book now. And the Dublin legend and current coach joined us in studio to chat through his life. OTB Gold. Jason Sherlock, you're very welcome to studio. Congrats on the new book. Cheers, Joe. It's been a while. It has, yeah. yeah. Well, you, you, can't, you can't talk to the media now. You know the rules. That's just a, a myth. You just don't ask me anymore, Joe. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll start asking you from next July through to September and well, see. I might have changed my number. Uh, not many dubs have written books, actually, of your generation. What prompted you? What made you think, I've got a story I want to tell, I'd like to tell? It was probably a couple of years ago. Um, right. Just went through. Uh, I, I did a course, an MBA, um, which was a business course. But one of the modules was organisational behaviour, and one of the assignments was in three thousand words, write about your life. And that was a really key learning for me to mm. actually have to confront challenges that I, I highlight in the book and never really thought about. So. Once I did that process, it really gave me the appetite to say, well, one, I'd like to know more about myself. But mm. two, I thought I could add value or people could identify with some of the challenges that I had mm. kind of growing up through my sporting career, post my sporting career. And then I suppose some of the philosophies I have now as a coach. Right. So that was the inspiration. You say of your childhood, overall, a happy upbringing, warm, but not carefree which seemed like a pretty good description. We're talking Finglas, 80s, 90s. You um, you say like Finglas, obviously at that time would have had a reputation and there would have been uh, rough and tough times, but your road, a real nice sense of togetherness and a place you really enjoyed being around. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Carrie Gallon Park. I yeah. was lucky. Finglas, yeah, it has a reputation. I was from the south of Finglas and people call that the, the posh part of Finglas. So, uh, but yeah, Carrie Gallon Park was just our little kind of, our hub of, of activity. Yeah. Um, both boys and girls, we just, we love sport. Um, that was our outlet. I'm sure like most homes around the country, you were, you were turfed out uh, once you finished school or mm. if you're on your summer holidays and you came back when it was dark so uh, the the passion we had was sport it could be it could be soccer ga yeah. rugby tennis american football whatever yeah. it was curbs. so uh, pats as i as it was called in finglas curbs and celebrage all right <laughs> there's been a lot of debate about the L curbs <laughs> things yeah uh, it might be just the finglas thing but i always remember it as pats right well we'll compare some rules after the interview um <laughs> You talk, I mean, the first time I ever really remember you, and I could be wrong, obviously, but remember you talking about race in any way was with Lee Chin and the Late Late Show. And I think that maybe was pretty much the first time you did it on a platform that big. Uh, I guess it seems, reading the book, like 
particularly when you came on the scene, the last thing you wanted to do, given your childhood, was hold your hand up and magnify any uh, sense of difference that you might have felt. This was not something for a long time in your life you really wanted to talk about publicly anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And again, the Lee Chin, speaking on the Late Late with Lee Chin, it coincided with the NBA process that it, it, I was at a stage where I could reflect back and one, understand it, mm. but two, kind of identify with a, a lad like Lee and other countless other people that have those challenges and kind of say, well, one, it's wrong, mm. you know, and then the second part was that I could actually help people um, if they can identify with the challenges that I had. So when I was younger, I used sport as a, as a mode or a mo- uh, so in, in a way that I'd be accepted. Mm. Um, the more I played, the better I played, the more people didn't care in my head how I looked. Yeah. It was just about, oh, well, he's the footballer or the basketballer. Mm. So that's how I use sport. Um, that and that was right up to kind of ninety five and the success and that acceptance piece had a had a big uh, bearing on on my sporting ambition, but I suppose with the with the profile I got in the nineties then the last thing I wanted again was to be highlighting racism or that because I did receive a lot of negative attention when my performances were below par. So again, the last thing I wanted to do was kind of put my head above the parapet again. Mm. So it wasn't until like I was finished playing at that stage and uh, when I could see back that yeah listen this it still goes on it's 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 better but it's not perfect mm. but it was something that I felt other people might be going through challenges like this so it was important to me that I spoke out yeah the family situation for people who haven't read the book your father was from Hong Kong he wasn't still with your mother You were. I mean it was a very full house in Finglas yeah yeah we lived uh, Nanny was there and uh, she shared a double bed with my mum I had Uncle Eddie had his own room and then I shared a, a double room with uh, my Uncle Brian so that was our family yeah. um, and as you mentioned like my father he, he wasn't married to my mum he was from Hong Kong um, his family they had a Chinese restaurant uh, just off Grafton Street and he had a big family there he moved moved out of the country kind of when I was young mm. um, obviously for work or for various other reasons so um, yeah th- that part of my my life and my childhood I kind of shunned and I, I, I didn't want to I, I was ashamed by it because it brought so much in my head negative attention it was, it was I mean that side of your life was associated with other lads in your estate I'm going to I mean you say um what was slagging is now racial abuse. So whichever term you want to use, let's let's judge them by the time that it was. Those lads were slagging you for this thing. So, of course, you're going to associate it with some kind of negativity or shame. You know, it's, it's a very, when you look back, I'd say from this point, it's plain as day. That's how you're going to feel about your, your ethnicity. Yeah. And what was interesting when I went through the reflective po- process, yeah. I spoke to one of my uncles and he, he kind of said, oh, well, we, we never treated you differently. We always saw you as a dub. Sure. And I can, I can understand that message and it was a great message, but it probably challenged me because if, and again, if, if I was to go back and it's all in hindsight mm. and reflection, if I was told, well, you are different, but that's okay because we, we all are different. That's what makes us special maybe I could have accepted the curiosity or the slagging a bit better Mm. but instead I just couldn't there was this contradiction why are they treating me differently why are they making fun of me when I'm one of them Mm. and then inevitably that would end up in a fist fight or anger or anger yeah (laughs) there's an incident you tell about putting a rock through neighbour's window who sang Chinese boy is it Japanese boy Japanese boy yeah Yeah. I don't don't even know the song personally (laughs) but obviously you're the one in trouble then and and like how's a young fellow meant to voice this to his uncle 
who's angry at him for throwing a rock through the neighbour's window and it's like the unfairness of the situation. And it's great that that's coming across because that's how I felt yeah. and I'm sure there's people out there be it through race or just the kind of low esteem or kind of issues that they have that they feel isolated and they feel that they can share their story with people and the one thing that I'd like the theme coming out of the book is to if you have those challenges share it with someone because sure. as I said I, I built it up to be something that it wasn't you know and if I had a share that maybe I would have been able to accept uh, people when they did slag me or whatever a lot easier so again I think there's a relevancy to, to challenges people have now yeah like in the book you describe a lot of it as almost ignorance as opposed to racism you're very kind you said there's no, there was no manual for my family it wasn't like they knew how to handle this exact situation at this exact time in Dublin where everybody looked the same the point and you mentioned it to Ryan Turbody which really kind of it struck me sometimes you look at kids and you don't realise half of what's going on like when you go to the Chinese restaurant and you're ordering fish and chips they just think well this guy's just obviously got a bland palate and it, it's, it is amazing what's actually going on behind the scenes with kids and, and for you it was well I'm not, I'm not getting Chinese food yeah, well, that's and I, I used to when when kids on the street used to ask me where's your dad from. I used to say he was a dub. He was he was Irish because I just didn't want to be different. Right. I didn't want to be seen as Chinese. And again, yeah, that was how I dealt with it because my mom, for in credit to her, she she always wanted us to keep that connection, and I resisted as much as I could. Yeah, I was brought to visit the Chinese restaurant, and in my head, the way I built it up was well, if I eat Chinese food, that's accepting that I'm Chinese. So they used to laugh when I come in and order fish and chips but that was that was in my head at the time yeah so in hindsight now you say it did damage your self-worth your self-esteem your confidence in a, in a, in a very real way Oh, it did. There's no question it did. And um, it kind of, there's an element of paranoia. And then it was great. Obviously, there was the high points coming up to 95. But then when results didn't go that way and there was criticism mm. and negativity, it was always hard to kind of decipher, was it negativity because of how I played or was it negativity about what it, what I'd become in terms of the profile I'd got and obviously part of that was the kind of the race piece that mm. was I seen just because I looked differently I got more attention so I was real paranoid about that as well hence mm. the reason I didn't want to speak out about racism because I didn't want to another reason why people would be critical of me because I knew obviously I knew post 95 my performances weren't yeah. where I would have liked them to be yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, like, like the, the way it ends with your father is, is terrible and that it's like this abrupt phone call with terrible news that he's been murdered effectively in South Africa um given your relationship with him at that point it's kind of a numb feeling how am I supposed to feel about this would that be fair? Yeah I, and again I, I didn't I suppose because people have their relationship with their parents they probably it is a bit of a, a shocking kind of end to that relationship yeah. but um, like, again You wouldn't have been talking with him often at that stage No, no, yeah. not at all He'd moved to, to South Africa He had a family in South Africa so again it was it was a Friday I remember I was preparing we were playing St. Pat's that night uh, with UCD and I mm. got a call um, from his uncle Martin uh, and he just said Martin or Jason it's Martin um, your dad he's been murdered uh, he, he he was robbed on his way home from work or something like that and he was very upset and I was like okay and he put down the phone and I was on my own and again there wasn't that emotion that I suppose most people would associate with that news um, and, and that's just the way it was for me mm. um, so again it was part of my story I suppose as, as I grew up and, and as I 
as I kind of progressed through my career. So yeah, um, yeah, I suppose it, it's sad in a way, but but that was my story, um, and yeah. obviously it was very tough for his family, which I'm sure I'm appreciative of now. There's a lot of upset over the last few weeks, no doubt, having to kind of to Listen to bring this it again. all up again. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. I can appreciate that because you, the line which stood out to me the most, I think, in the whole book was where you said this is still a part of my life I haven't addressed as I should. Yeah, and again, I suppose the book, as much as it's about the past, it's also about the present and yeah. future. And the last thing, the last thing I'd like to come across that everything is perfect. I know I have my challenges and part of the book is about what the future may hold. Mm. And part of that is that that family kind of relationship and connection and it's certainly something that as I said they have family in the country and I do want to make contact because at the end of the day I have children I'm sure my grandparents and my father's parents they they just see me as their grandchild you know they accepted me maybe I mightn't have seen it like that for a long time Mm. but um, I think it's important for me to make sure I make that connection and and, and meet them again yeah but again it's it's, uh, to to reiterate the point I made while back it's very understandable because you're out in the green with the lads this is your one you know I remember my youth everyone had something you know what I mean mm, it was yeah. either an appearance or something about their family or something you know there was a thing you could slag people over this was your thing that the lads would go at you over and so the more you I guess are a part of your father's family's life the more you kind of exacerbate it it's going to be associated with them ribbing you so I can like it's really tricky for a kid to navigate that one yeah you know? yeah, and then that's why I hope that people with similar yeah. challenges no matter what they are they'll identify with that and, and hopefully see a, another way or another solution in terms of how to deal with that How often would it have gone way beyond the lads acting immaturely stupidly your mates a lot of the time probably how often would it go beyond that like strangers having a go like the, the, the stories of being down in Ballier Ballier playing hurling and like N-word is used and you know terrible stuff is said to you on a pitch and you get very upset like how commonplace was that kind of stuff um, it, it's hard to kind of put a, a figure on yeah. it because like if it happened once a week or seven days a week the way I felt was important so it wouldn't have taken once one slag it was back to square one so right. again that was it was just the way things were and I know like Ireland has changed and like what's accepted has changed and like it wasn't we're not just talking in my childhood like I played games for UCD I played a, a game for the Dublin senior team mm-hmm. in a challenge match and getting verbally abused by managers and players on the sideline obviously playing for Dublin I'm sure my, my family had to listen to a lot Mm. playing League of Ireland when it's one man and it's as dog at the matches you, you heard a lot of slagging so it, it's just it's just it's a part of Irish uh, culture yeah. I don't know it's it's obviously not a nice part but the one thing I don't think we can talk enough about racism because it's not perfect mm. so the more understanding the more awareness that's there hopefully that will assist people that might have similar challenges I spoke to Lee Chin in the studio a couple of months ago and he was saying his dad who's lived in Wexford Town for 30, 40 years will still occasionally I mean again he didn't put a number on it because I guess that's less important but will still walk down Wexford Town and you might have a group of lads certain age, 20s and one of them decides to be a hero and says something stupid and I couldn't believe that this was I mean naively I just thought like you know Lee Chin's dad's been around the village for so long like what's going on here that, that these idiots are 
behaving this way. I couldn't believe it was still something that was that prevalent, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think what's important and what I've learned from doing the book is right. that it doesn't really matter what other people say. It's how you internalise that message. So, again, when I was younger, if someone slagged me, I took it personally. Mm-hmm. Whereas now I understand, well, the problem is with them. It's not with me. Mm. And I think that's the difference where, and I'm sure Lee's father, he can just accept it for ignorance. Whereas I just couldn't understand that. I, I took it personally. Whereas now if someone slagged me, well, the problem's with them. You know, it's not, right. with, it's not with me. Because if you do take it personally, God, that's powerful and corrosive. Like that's going to really mess with you. And that's what happened with me. Yeah. And now in saying that, and I, I talk about, I think a lot of that was the motivation why I kind of played sport to yeah. the level that I did. Because I certainly wasn't the most talented person. I wasn't the biggest or anything like that. So there was certainly some fuel that kind of drove that. Yeah. And I think a lot of it was that kind of anger and that uh, desire to be accepted. Yeah. Uh, you used a phrase there where you said, um, you know, I could hear something and go back to square one. When you say back to square one, do you mean like in terms of how confident or good you're feeling or, or what, what, is, what is square one for you? Square one in terms of the slagging. So yeah. it would only, so if you went, you could go a week without being slagged, but yeah, if okay. you got slagged once, you're back to how you feel, like all the emotions. Like I can still, even even talking about it and going through the book, yeah, yeah. it was some great times, but there was a lot of kind of tough times to reflect upon. And it's, it's I, I think people who've had any kind of maybe verbal or physical abuse or whatever, it, it it only takes a kind of talking about it and you can go straight back to that time. Because and, it, bring, it builds on all the other stuff which has happened. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And yes. so what, what does it fit? Is it like horrible tightness? Like Lee Chin used the phrase on being on a pitch when it was said to him once. It was terrible because he said he was the one that suddenly felt a bit embarrassed. This is going back exactly. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. You think, God, it's, it, it's, it's a double whammy that the idiot who should be embarrassed is not and actually you suddenly feel incredibly self-conscious and it, you tightness in the chest all those that stuff yeah and you you feel that you deserve it in some way that 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 is he right to be slagging you or like do do you deserve that so you feel as if you're you're at fault for it which again as you say it's a double whammy it's horrible um, can, and that's can you hear why, illogical even that sounds I know now and that's why to hear Lee Chin to hear Aaron Cunningham actually say I was slagged and it's wrong yeah. and they know it's wrong yeah. that was really powerful for me at that time uh, when I, when I heard them saying that one sort of last point in all this area of your life before we get onto the sports field was uh, you had the opportunity to meet half-brothers and sisters. And, uh, I mean, it, it's really well expressed in the book. Like, they're strangers, effectively, and yet they're probably closer to you than 99.9% of the population in another way. And you kind of left that. You left it. And I, I, under, I understood that. I think you were in South Africa. You had the chance to meet them. You yeah. Well, I, initially when, when the funeral took place, I, I was asked would I go and I, mm. I kind of turned it down because, again, didn't feel didn't feel there was an, there was no urge to do it um, there was what, a lot what age were you then on. by the way I would have been early 20s yeah. at that stage when it, when it happened and then I happened to be in South Africa I was filming Rapid uh, which was a TV programme way back when and we were flying out of Johannesburg it was kind of a couple of years after um, when, when my father passed away and I did contemplate kind of trying to get a taxi out of Johannesburg mm. Airport and go and meet um, his wife and that um, rang home to think about it and talk about it and again it just 
it would have been a nice thing to do but I just wasn't sure about it so um, who knows like um, who knows in the future yeah it's something when, when I had chi- children it kind of changes the dyma- dynamic and I was very adamant and open with them that they knew they had a grandfather who was from Hong Kong mm. and yeah that's great dad thanks and that was the end of it you know that way yeah. whereas I built it up so much in my head when I was growing up <laughs> having your own kids I don't have any do you suddenly realise, well, the unconditional love he would have had for me? Yeah, definitely. Um, now, obviously, his circumstances took him out of the country, sure. but certainly his family who are still in the country, um, yeah, it must have been a challenge for them because any time I met them, I was met with so much love. I just resisted a lot mm. of it because of how I felt about it. So I've no doubt if and when I, I do meet them, um, I'm sure they'll they'll welcome me the way they did when I was when I was a lot younger. Yeah, uh, I mean it's it's I mean it's the first kind of half of the book it feels like in some ways like the whole book in some ways it's so kind of powerful and and it was something you'd never really spoken about I know Paul Kimmage mentioned to you that he had asked you about your father during your playing career and you'd always remember that because it seemed like media felt it was too much of an intrusion to ask you about that area was that your experience as a player? Yeah and that's I suppose that was the the goal that I wanted to be seen as Jason Sherlock the footballer or the yeah. sports person I didn't want to be the fella that looks Chinese and as I said it always caught my eye when because like my uncle used to keep scrapbooks and I'd be looking at stuff and it was the one he was the one journalist that kind of mentioned that and obviously that's a bit that's the way Paul does things mm. so uh, yeah I was intrigued the fact that he he had done it now I'm sure I wasn't open or welcome to people question where I came from anyway mm. but, um, but it wasn't a general thing across your career you didn't you didn't often sit down for interviews and it was questions about your family people kind of almost said oh I'll, I'll leave him alone here and this yeah was it was it? never and again I don't If even if they had asked that way I probably wouldn't have answered them right. to be honest because again I just wasn't at that stage in my development I probably wasn't comfortable talking about it I didn't mm understand it that's why it's great to do an autobiography at this stage where if I'd have done it when I was playing or just after I was playing I think it would have been a totally different perspective I would have been quite emotional maybe quite negative in a lot of kind of situations whereas now with a few years I I think there's the the reflection piece Mm. I can kind of I can tilt things in a very positive way in terms of looking at things and understanding why I did it that way and understanding how it'll help me in the future Mm like from a sporting point of view you're basically a prodigy like it's disgusting from uh, from just so young you're kind of good at everything like there is a period in your career where you're playing under 15s basketball for the country you're the captain of the under 17s in 1992 John Horn incoming president now mm, yeah. of the GA was your science teacher at Vincent's and like I you know we were laughing about it outside but in second year you were playing for the sixth year GAA and soccer teams. Which Out of is, all my achievements, show, you think that's the best one? <laughs> that was the one that made me stop and go, bloody hell, like this is ridiculous kind of stuff. So uh, you were clearly pretty awesome like in your teenage years at a lot of stuff, despite you saying, as you did earlier, I wasn't the most talented, I wasn't the biggest. Yeah, but you were obviously, you must have had unbelievable hand-to-eye coordination, unbelievable depth perception all the (laughs) minuscule skills that you would need to be playing with the 17, 18 year olds when you're 13, 14 I don't know I think the the longer I'm retired the better I've become as a footballer (laughs) or a sports person because I don't I don't remember myself being really good I was competitive I had a good attitude I gave it everything Mm. but particularly in the mid-teens I wasn't very good it was kind of I got a bit better once I got more efficient on my skills but um, I don't No second year in my school 
was playing <laughs> well, senior that could be to do with the, the level of of talent in our fifth and sixth year classes. But no question, like John Horn, like a lot of guys and coaches throughout my career, they obviously saw something in me and kind of believed in me, which was a really important part of my uh, sports career. But it's also so important in so many sports careers yeah. because without the impact and the contact of certain coaches along the way that just believe in you, I don't think you'll you get where where you end up. So sure. definitely, John, he was he was a guy that, as I said, I I wasn't sure why I was playing at that level, but he saw something that potentially uh, other coaches or other teachers wouldn't have. Yeah. The that make you feel better, Joe? Not really. I, like in my head, I'm like, that's all lies. That's just not true. There's no way that you know he'd be playing for the third year team or the uh, the under 15s team. Like when I think in '95, so I was 10 in '95, and I, I like I vividly remember two like with my Kildare friends, right. obviously. So we kind of hated you guys mainly, but still do. Yeah, obviously, <laughs> especially now. Yeah. Uh, I do remember the day when your boot came off and you scored the goal, and like. You didn't have you didn't have the same haircut as the other GA lads. You would like you know short back and sides. It was you're just it was just cool. It was like the first time as ten year olds we thought this is kind of as cool as soccer. Yeah, you know, yeah. and so it was like an amazing thing. So even the ten year olds right through to everybody watching was kind of fell in love a bit with you. It was exciting. You were obsessed with scoring goals. All of this stuff was going on. Did you enjoy it or was it too much, the Geomania? I loved it. Did you? Okay, it good. Because, yeah. yeah, and that's why it was great to be able to look back at it in a positive frame because for so many years throughout my playing career, it was it was like an anchor or weight back there because people just wanted to talk about 95. Yeah. <clears throat> but at this stage... What was great was that I did connect with so many kind of young and old from Dublin and not Dublin. There was a there was obviously a curiosity there. I didn't look like a GA footballer. I didn't play like a GA footballer, and I didn't really want to be a GA footballer. I want to be known as a basketballer, really, right. at that stage. So, yeah, it was great to kind of share the kind of surrealness of that uh, time because as you say I, I, I was trying to think in May 94 I won a four countries with the Irish under 17 team and then like literally the next May mm. I, I'd played I'd won a, a League of Ireland title with UCD first division player of the year yeah. I played against Liverpool and I'd made my debut for, for Dublin mm. so a lot happened in a very short period of time It was amazing to really like you're crisscrossing the country UCD to playing league matches with Dublin and it like even at minor level you weren't a star you were kind of a Johnny come lately with the Dublin Miners like it's a, it's amazing how you went from 94 to where you were in 95 you mentioned Roy Evans and the Liverpool friendly the UCD friendly where Evans mentioned you afterwards to the media but then he, he sees you in a lobby and says I mean literally does Roy Evans saying to you at 18, 19 you know you look good there Let, we'd love to get you over to Anfield to have a look at you yeah yeah, yeah. Here's where I'm reading and I say to myself, stop everything. He needs, like, on a plane the next day. <laughs> like, how? I, I just don't get how you're not over there. And if it doesn't work out, then Grant, I'll come back and play for Dublin. And I should say, by the way, the book doesn't read as if, you know, I could have been a contender and I, you know, I, I would have made it at Liverpool. There was no no guarantees and odds are probably still against you. But, mm. but Evans stopped you and said, let's get you over. And the offer was there to go over to Anfield. Like... Yeah, it, it's one of those, and I, it's like it wasn't. It could have been a contender, but no. certainly when people ask, and it did for literally five years, it was the bane of my life. People saying, "Are you going to Liverpool? When are you going?" Yeah. So it was nice. Damien Lawler, who helped with the book, uh, like he obviously got the the kind of the print back mm. then, and there was a lot of stuff that he was quoted. Uh, Roy Evans was quoted of saying, so it seemed as if it was legit. And from my point of view, that was kind of May and. 
the priority then was to play with Dublin uh, the summer took off it took a life of its, of its own yeah. and uh, I refer to it in the book if people ask when could have happened to me we, we go back to Jury's Hotel I think it was the Dublin or Bar hmm. in Jury's at the time I'm sitting there with Kevin Morn and I'm about to go into the post uh, All-Ireland function if Kevin and I'm not saying he could have but if Kevin had said right there's your ticket to Liverpool you go in the morning that was the only time that it could have happened because the reality was my focus changed from that day for yeah. a number of years I was happy to be accepted and because of that my sporting kind of ambitions my sporting ability kind of went on the decline for a few years so yeah, um, yeah it was nice to look back and even like in a squad against England and you look at the names that were in it played against Austria I think Ma- Alex Maniger was in goal Old. Like yeah. it, was, it was great going back over old uh, programs and to see those names. I'm sure, uh, yeah. Robbie Fowler recognised you a couple of years after the game yeah, as well yeah, with Stephen exactly, Manning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so God, yeah. It's, God damn it! it <laughs> but again, it's it's just it was such a unique sporting career at that time. It's not. It's probably something that wouldn't happen now. Mm. And to be able to share that with a different kind of audience, a different kind of age, to show them what was going on, no. because obviously we, we mentioned earlier as well playing hurling down in Ballyhay as well kind of that's a part of my chemistry as well and, yeah. and added to my love of GA. Yeah. The um the the lean years then I'd always presumed you were sick not to have built on one on Ireland and it, it's true you you really were. Uh, you say at one point it's a horrible thing to live your life with a cloud of failure hanging over you. That was becoming the overriding emotion. I was becoming obsessive. That was maybe towards the end of the Tommy Lyons era when you you, you made that point, but that could have been true for a huge chunk of it. Uh, they were really, really difficult years for you. Pillar came and really gave it a good go. But um, failure is the word. So that's certainly your perception of those years. That's what it. That's what it felt like anyway. That's very clear. Yeah, at the time, as a player, again, you judge yourself on success and failure. And because after 95 I felt I hadn't done myself justice I hadn't done Dublin justice we were we were a losing team Mm. I really kind of looked at it then and said hold on you're not going to be playing sport all your life this is what you dreamed of doing you have to you have to get back there you have to try and give yourself the best chance to to win again Mm. and again I would have identified with the likes of your Roy Keynes your Ron O'Gara's the Tony McCoy's these guys that had the drive and desire to create the standards they mightn't have been the most talented players but they got the most out of themselves so I kind of took that mantle on in my own head and and I was obsessive about it there's no question Um, and when I I finished playing it, it didn't finish in good circumstances for me all I could see was failure because mm. I judged myself on on what I won and what I lost, and um, it wasn't until kind of the last few years where I see a lot more positives to to go through that time. The the resilience that I showed, the character that it it took to kind of keep going back year after year yeah. and trying to apply yourself. And there was an interesting uh, evening the week of a game against Armagh obviously Geezer Kieran McGinney had been at Nafina so you'd seen him up close and personal you understood what he did day after day after day of training and you were saying to it might have been Mick Galvin I'm not sure was it Mick Galvin? That's right yeah, yeah. and uh, I mean what a, what a mad thing to say as a player but the week of the game basically saying to Galvin look I've seen Geezer I know what these Armagh boys are like we actually don't, we don't want this more than them 
Yeah, well, Kieran McGinney, when you talk about influences in your playing career, Mick Alvin, Desi Farrell, and Kieran McGinney would be the three in my head that yeah. had a major impact on me. Um, Geezer, we got to see when he he joined the Fiend when I was there, and again, he just got the most out of himself mm. physically and mentally. And uh, he he was a kind of a he set the bar. Then once I saw how he prepared for things, and again, it probably was relative to where I felt as well, because going into that game, I I thought I might play a, a significant role and, and I didn't get starting in the team and I think it was even it was the morning of the game I rang Mick and wow. I'd just been thinking about it and I said like I, I've seen how Geezer prepares I see how much it means to him like I, I just can't see how we deserve it more than him and like Mick said, just cop yourself on. <laughs> and he, like, he probably was right. But again, and there's a team in the book, like, I, I, there's a lot more than just the winning and losing. Like, I, I, I had a lot of empathy to people I played against that I, I, I beat. Yeah. And also guys that I lost. The Tyrone. Uh, Chris Lawn. You yeah. were delighted to see Chris yeah. Lawn win his All Ireland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, because I felt there was a bond, a connection. And um, when we played against each other, we, we, that lumps out of each other for 70 minutes mm. and then we embraced and we hugged after the game so that to me it's a it's a massive part of what sport should be about To sum up a, a brief kind of 18 months then Pat Gilroy comes in Mickey Whelan's back you know the man ahead of his time in 96, 97 you say you're suddenly doing a lot of things Mickey Whelan was trying to instill in, in 96, 97 uh, Gilroy's getting the defensive situation sorted out and that ends up in the startled Earwigs game against Kerry and you with the clock ticking quite loudly now are just disgusted and you know lads are out in the piss that night the dubs lads and a bit of singing on tables and you're looking around thinking what the hell's going on ironically that kind of Roy Keane pursuit of excellence you know even that's a Roy Keane story looking around at lads the night of a defeat letting their hair down having a few drinks you know ironically uh, Pat Gilroy uh, says something to you ahead of the following season which is ultimately one you're not involved in uh, Jason, there will never be leaders while you're around. So he seemed to look at you becoming the Roy Keane crank. Gilroy seemed to almost suggest that was inhibiting the younger players, like you were too overbearing. Is that was that would that have been a fair criticism in hindsight, or did he have you slightly wrong? Um, I, in hindsight, I think it was absolutely fair, okay. and I think even and that's I suppose with that hindsight. I was kind of putting kind of someone at the end of their career. I'm putting my perspective and my standards on young guys that were only kind of finding their own way. And that wasn't fair Hmm. because they didn't have the baggage or they didn't have the desperation that I had. They were young kids that had to find their own way. So uh, particularly being on the other side of, of management now, I can understand Pat, he wanted his younger guys to kind of develop and improve. And he did see, he did see me in the way. And as much as for to be referred to as Roy Keane to me was the ultimate compliment because that's the way I was going in hindsight I can absolutely see why he thought that would be detrimental to to Dublin progressing and particularly the younger lads Mm. progressing so again it's a great doing it now it's a great lesson for me because again I encounter 30-35 players they're all coming from different areas they've all they're younger older they've different goals different motivations so it was great experience for me looking back on it to Mm. understand you got to understand what the challenges of the, the players are. Uh, desperately hard to take at the time, though. Not least because oh, you thought, I'm, I'm doing everything right here. If they were all, if everyone was cranky as me, we'd be doing a whole lot better. Uh, a lot of tears, a lot of heartache over the following few years, like real pain. 
the proudest part or one of the proudest parts of my career would be the years after I was dropped because to me I never I never gave up on Dublin you know I, I went physically I went until I couldn't do it anymore yeah. and I speak about in the book when Jim came in one of the first things I had was a conversation with Jim about would he consider me and full credit to Jim now he could have been putting down the phone going what's he thinking oh he definitely did <laughs> he probably did yeah because what was I 36 37 yeah. at that stage but he, he opened the door to, to that possibility yeah. he put me in touch with Fergus Connolly and it was great to get to a stage where I could ring Jim and say listen thank you for the opportunity I'm not going to be physically able to play mm. and put the phone down and there was closure there mm. was release because I felt now my race was run it wasn't run in 2009 to me it was 2013 One thing which must have been incredibly upsetting was uh, you were doing a bit of work with Caroline Kerr, the sports psychologist, she was working with the Dublin team and Gilroy had uh, mentioned that lads had been sounded out around that 2010 period if they wanted you back. I don't know who he sounded out. You probably don't know exactly who, maybe you do, but the word was no, we don't want him back. That struck me as like, oof, that's betrayal. That's uh, That's an awful thing to hear. It was difficult. There's no question it was difficult, but again... I'd have a lot more sympathy and empty to a manager that is trying to it was like the the, the the wasp that wouldn't die obviously I was this kind of presence that still wanted to go and obviously he, he saw it totally different so mm. again I like I've kind of relayed the facts of the the situation back then and yeah it was it was tough for me personally and it led the the, the next couple of years were really tough to swallow yeah. but that's why I'm delighted to be at this stage of my progression where I can look back at that and kind of understand it a bit more and be a lot more positive about what it was at the time mm. the um the happy finale I suppose is that Jim Gavin does get you involved to work with the forwards and I think he used the phrase um about you know uh Heart started beating again, and you know, real purpose to your life again. The thing that you love the most, I suppose. And um, he offered you free reign, and it seems that you've really got that. And he's kind of you've, you've skipped a few rungs in the ladder almost to, to get in with these boys, which must be amazing. Absolutely. I, again, and we're we're all kind of we're all kind of grateful for the people that made things possible, and for Jim to go out after uh, they were beaten in Donegal to to contact me. Like again, it's to his to his debt I am that he did uh, kind of reach out to me. So as much as I was delighted, and it was kind of yeah, just shake his hand, whatever you want you to do. There was a big part of me kind of worried because. I associated myself with that failure yeah. um, so it did take a, a couple of meetings to kind of break down what exactly he wanted from then it was the challenge was to kind of make sure that I, I had the trust of the players because again I wasn't sure what the lie of the land was mm. so so it was really good and from a sporting point of view it's just been a great environment to, to learn as much as potentially I might be adding value to them to be able to learn from those guys is, is just been great for the last yeah. few years and again not that winning kind of changes everything to be involved with a, an All-Ireland winning team again as we were in 2015 mm. It, it did mean a lot in terms of it wasn't just me you know yeah. just to get that release and again that's not about the success part it just it was nice to be able to bookend the book with as, as I have with a, a picture in 95 yeah. and a picture with the lads in, in 2000 because I don't like 2011 I don't like I don't like you in the stand I, I, I'm uncomfortable I didn't like reading that I know you're saying look I was happy for them and I'm sure in some level you were but you know the notion of, of uh, your teammates 
waving up to you in the stand and tapping their heart and you doing it up to them in the stands and you go out in a session with them and next day you admit it gets a bit dark I suppose when you get home from the euphoria like I, that read to me as torture like awful sitting through that yeah it was a kind of contrast because yeah there was like it was, when I was on my own and kind of a couple of days yeah it was tough but like I was so my overwhelming feeling when that whistle went was well pride mm. and just the light for the lads and I remember going out to the hotel that night and like embracing Mossy Quinn embracing Alan yeah. embracing Clucko and like they're the things that I remember about that time you know it was just so nice because we had taken so much mm. criticism and I, like obviously I believed in them I knew that they were capable of winning it so it was great yeah listen it wasn't the role that I would have liked to have had mm. but I was just so happy for to, to see them getting their success yeah. I wouldn't have been at the match I would have been like <laughs> just get me out of here I'd be on holidays <laughs> uh, last point then your work with the Dublin forwards can you give us any insights? Like, what have you no. brought? Yeah, yeah, no, I figured that. Go on, uh, Joe, ask the question anyway. Um, I'd be kind of curious to know, in so much as you can tell me what you're working on. Like, I watched the, I was at the Tyrone game, uh, the semi-final. That was, that was, that looked to me like a basketball match, the way Dublin set up. I mean, it was, it's just keeping the width, two on each side. It just looked like basketball was a part of the thinking here, for instance. Um so that made me wonder. Geez, I wonder has Jo. I know. I know there was an, there's another basketball coach who was involved at, at some point or other. At but, one stage, yeah. yeah. But yeah. I do remember in that game thinking, God, I'd love to chat to Jo off the record about this and see <laughs> what's going on here. For instance, you know that that kind of struck me. So I felt maybe your fingerprints were on that one a little bit. Is there a question there? <laughs> Sorry, Joe. Yeah. Um, listen, as a obviously. And you read the book, you, you can see how precious Dublin football is to me and to be involved in any capacity is great. I think the one thing as a coach, I will always be grounded in my playing experiences. That's going to bring me um, wherever I go as a coach. And the one thing, and I do mention it, I was dependent, I was at the mercy of my teammates because I wasn't big and strong enough to win my own ball. So that's my philosophy generally that it's important that you have your your, your playing to make the team better. Mm-hmm. Um, basketball, obviously I love basketball. I like the dynamic of it in terms of your five players all on the same wavelength, all looking to do the same thing. It's it's harder to do in GA because it's fifteen aside. Yeah, okay. I, I think you can see there's a lot more kind of intelligence and understanding about how teams play. You only have to look at the defensive strategies the likes of Donegal and Armagh, Tyrone have had over the years. Mm. So, uh, so it's fun. It's a great challenge, kind of looking at that and seeing if you can kind of counteract that to to kind of to beat it. So, has it reached a point where? say against the blanket defence in particular because that's more predictable in terms of what you're coming up against and it seems Dublin have found a way to cope with that and stay calm so when Kieran Kilkenny is on the left hand side and in possession and there's two on the other touchline and there's one ahead of him does the team have a pretty good idea of where it's going what's going to happen next the rotation that's going to happen or is it play what you see Um I suppose it, it's a bit of both you know ultimately as a coach all you can do is prepare your team as best you can mm. ultimately we're not going to be making the decisions they have in the game it's up to them to understand that so all we can do in training is try to prepare them for situations they're going to come against like 
sport is sport it's it's about individuals it's sure. about creativity it's about demonstrating your talent and that's what we want our players to do so we we would at no stage kind of uh, have them like robots that if the ball goes to A you must do B or C you know we we, we empower the players to kind of come up with the answer to themselves I think it's to their credit mm. that people like yourself are observing that and saying well look how they're doing as a team I think that's the biggest compliment any team can get in any sport is that they're all playing for each other and mm. uh, and that's just what we, we aspire to Yeah uh, Last point then uh, there was a lot of talk about this after the All-Ireland final the widespread dragging down of Mayo players at the kick out at the end I mean I was watching I thought it was terrible personally I understand players do what they have to do to win and I think Mayo would have done something similar in the same uh, position. How do you reflect on that? Because I know you're you're a real sportsman and you don't want to see that stuff going on and you're probably a pragmatist too. So where does that sit with you? Something like what we saw in those last few minutes. Yeah, well, I, I, I think your point about if Mayo would do something similar too. So again, it's not a Dublin thing. I think that's, it's the situation and it's the circumstances. And I think that's yeah, it's where... Not, it's not a Dublin thing. And actually, uh, you know, because funny enough, Jim Gavin has come out and said, we're not a cynical team. We only play the right way. I'm I'm not having that. I'm not saying Dublin are necessarily worse than anyone, but I'm not having the, oh, we only play the right way. I think you're all at it. How do you feel about it? Yeah, well, I go back to um, when Tyrone won in All-Ireland in the mid-2000s. Peter Canavan, one of the most talented players, um, the last-minute rugby tackles, Colin Cooper, another one of the most talented players. So that's, what, 10, 15 years ago. So I, I would look to our administrators our rule makers to ensure that our games don't finish that way mm. uh, I know there's been some comment about in certain games how like in basketball uh, if you if flagrant foul you go to the, the free throw line so I think there is an element of responsibility on the, the games makers to ensure like they have with the black card or the mark that we're ensuring that we're, we're exasperating the, the positives about our game yeah. um, and so that you, is important So you can think look it's human nature I we can tell them go out and play the right way but the reality is in the closing two minutes when there's an All-Ireland final on the line players are going to do what they're going to do you kind of feel there's no way of stopping that happening um, I think instincts take over in right. terms of how we how teams will win or get over the line I think the challenge for the actual game the rules of the games does the, the punishment fit the crime so mm. how can we how can we ensure that games finish the way that you might want it in terms of a spectacle mm. um, and I, I think that's a challenge it's it's much broader than Dublin or Mayo oh it is because we, 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 too win. many big games finish that way when there's a point or two in it you know it's, yeah, it's yeah. the real world so I think I think they're going to have to look at it your plans are to keep working with Dublin you start a new business effectively you talk about it in the book so there's there's that so I guess consulting with business the lessons that you can learn from sport so that's where you see your your future it seems you kind of found yourself at this period in your life in a nice way yeah exactly and that's the process of writing the book has right. helped with that so I, I, I launched my own website jo.ie last week and again the, the simple business concept is authentic mentorship I'd like to think based on my experiences based on the the expertise that I might have built up over the years that I can assess people in their performance mm. both individually and in a team be it in a business environment other sports or maybe people through education because they do need kind of uh, uh, mentorship along the way so uh, yeah it's a really exciting time it's a daunting time I'm sure yeah but, uh, but something I'm really looking forward to okay well listen thanks for coming in for your time best of luck with the book and you keep that phone on around August September time next year and we'll, we'll, we'll have a chat again looking forward yeah. to it Joe <laughs> OTB Gold the very best of off the ball that was an OTB Podcast Network presentation 